let me get us back into uh, this gospel. We have been part of a segment of Luke called the Travel Narrative, and it runs from chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, verse 44. And, and this was kicked off in 951 by this statement, the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up. So Luke is telling us that Jesus was anticipating his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that point, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from 9 to 19, what we're doing is we're walking with Jesus toward Jerusalem, where he will lay down his life and rise again and establish the church. Now, along the way, so far, we've heard about the cost of following Jesus We've learned about the reality of living in a community on mission. These disciples, they're just learning, right? This is all new to them. So they're, they're beginning to figure that out. We learned about spiritual habits like prayer and evangelism or proclamation, talking about this kingdom that's coming that nobody really knows anything about, but, but it's coming. And then uh, we finished up in uh, November talking about conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. So that brings us right up to uh, where we last left Jesus. Again, that was the end of November, Luke 11, 37 through 54. And Jesus was having lunch with a small group of Pharisees and lawyers. Uh, if you haven't heard that message, go back and listen to it. Uh, Jeff did a great job really helping us see that, uh, that interaction. But by the end of it, the religious leaders are furious. Um, we're told at uh, 53 and 54, after lunch with the legalists, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press Jesus hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They were determined to take Jesus out. Now, Jesus leaves that conversation, and Luke gives us the impression that he kind of walks right into another encounter, and this is with an enormous crowd. Commentators say it's a record of the largest crowd in all of the Gospels. So all of these people are coming, and um, they're kind of unruly, think rally-like. There's a lot of activity. We're told that they're trampling one another to get to Jesus. Now, we're not told that they're for or against him. They just want to come up close enough where they can hear him and see what he does and find out what this guy is all about. Um, Jesus takes this opportunity in the midst of this unruly crowd to begin training his disciples about taking this opportunity and facing the opposition they will undoubtedly face as proclaimers of the gospel. That's chapter 12, is his training, his preparation for these disciples. Now, to help us get in a frame of mind for this chapter, I want to ask you to do something. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, you may feel a little bit uncomfortable but I think uh, God can use that for us. Um, this isn't about status or distinction in any way. This is very personal.
for you. It's really just a statement of what you believe. If you are a Christian, if today you would say, I am a Christ follower, and here's what that means. That means that you came to a place in your life where you saw that you were separated from God because of your sin, and you had need of a savior, a substitute, someone to die in your place so that you could be forgiven and have a relationship with God and then walk with him for a lifetime. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christ follower is. If you would say, that is you, I wanna ask you to stand. There's no superiority at all attached to this. If you're a believer, you know that you don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You weren't just good enough. You weren't just somebody special that God picked out because he didn't have anybody else to go to. You know that you came to him with empty hands and you asked him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's a Christian. You can be seated. Now, for those who might not have stood, um, again, I want to be very clear. There there was no sense of superiority or any distinctions or anything like that associated with that. If you're here and you didn't stand, I'm just assuming that you're seeking, that you have questions about who God is and what he's like and what you're like and what's going on in this world and what happens after you die, questions like that. I'm assuming you're here to... (laughs) to get those questions answered and what better place. And we as a church, we want you to know we're glad you're here and we want you to ask all the questions that you will ever have. And you're gonna hopefully experience us full of love and respect. So, uh, so thankful that you're here. And um, it's exciting to know that you are seeking. I hope that maybe even today, you'll receive some encouraging words. For those of you who stood, I want you to capture the thoughts that raced through your mind when I asked you to stand. Now, you may have said, you know what? I just came to church today just to kind of come in, take a seat, sing a few songs, hear a good message, and then go to lunch. I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you felt like that was kind of insensitive of me to ask you to publicly stand in front of all these people. I mean, what might they think? Maybe you're in, uh, I've been using this phrase lately, maybe you're in kind of a rough patch. Maybe you're struggling with some doubts or maybe there's a besetting sin or maybe there's something that makes you feel insecure about whether you're a Christian or not. I, I don't know where you are, I know you were thinking something when I asked you to stand. The reason I did that was because that was perhaps as close as we can get to what it might have been like to be a Christian in the first century. And yet, it is so far away. I mean, we're with family, we're with friends. This is a loving, accepting, encouraging place. 
And yet you still probably felt a little discomfort, didn't you? It just felt weird to go, I'm going to stand. And that means something. I'm not just joining a club. I'm a Christ follower. And so I'm going to stand up and everybody's going to know. I want you to imagine, just imagine that you're with Jesus in front of that unruly crowd and they're all coming after you and they want to know, you going to stand? Jesus knows that that's a difficult moment for any Christian. And when you're living in a culture that's under the authority of Rome and under Jewish power and... Um, it's, the culture isn't sympathetic to your belief. There's no Bible. There's no church. There's this idea about a kingdom of God that's coming. And there's this man who claims to be God. And he's saying, get ready. Challenging days are ahead. He's preparing you to face that. And he begins with these words. Look in verse 1. When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I kind of thought for a moment that that might offend me a little bit if I'm one of those 12. I'm like, hey, man, I've been following you around for coming on about three years. I think I've shown my commitment and you think I'm prone to hypocrisy we just sang those words a minute ago prone to wander lord I feel it these are words to people who sing that song Jesus is looking at his disciples warning them because hypocrisy is a real threat and it can come in all kinds of forms, but it's much more dangerous when times are hard, when there is opposition and perhaps even persecution. That's when hypocrisy has an opportunity to grow. Now, let's not forget what Jesus said to those Pharisees during lunch. This is back in verse 39. He said, you Pharisees, Clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. There's the picture. That's the leaven of the Pharisee. It's this inconsistency. It's a conscious inconsistency between their public impression and their private intentions. And we don't know to what degree they might have been aware of that. We just know that it was true. Jesus called them out on that. He tried to bring that to their attention. And yet their response was greater hostility, not less, not repentance or contrition. Jesus was warning his disciples that that thing, that condition, it's contagious. It's a lot like leaven or yeast. Now let's think about yeast and hypocrisy, leaven and hypocrisy. Leaven is undetectable until it's had its effect. 
If you bake and you put leavened dough into another, it's, it's not like you look at that dough and go, oh, that's leaven. You just know that it is and you put it in there. And then what's going to happen? It's going to spread. It's going to get to every bit of that larger lump. Uh, Paul twice, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5 says, a little leaven leavens what? The whole lump. That's just the way it is. That's the way it works. And it inflates what it inhabits. So think pride. You know, knowledge puffs up. That's the effect of hypocrisy. That's the effect of this leaven. Now, specifically, I gave you a definition for hypocrisy, but let's think about what it looks like in very practical terms. It's an indifference to one's own duplicity. It's like you may even know it's there, but you just sort of push it aside, sweep it under the rug, ignore it if possible. Hypocrisy craves the attention and the praise of men. Certainly that was true of the Pharisees. It selectively observes the commands of Christ. It it puts the person in authority like, I will do that, I won't do that, and I get to decide. It conforms to one's environment. That's what hypocrisy does. It kind of scans the room and sees what, what should I be today? And then lastly, hypocrisy is quick to criticize the flaws of other of others. It's usually far more aware of other people's flaws than it is of its own. So hypocrisy or this conscious inconsistency is dangerous because it is pervasive and it is deceptive. But what Jesus is trying to show his men that it's also pointless. And and follow Jesus here. He's saying, listen, guys, we may never know what's happening in the privacy of everyone else's lives, but there will be a day, this is in your notes, when all will be revealed. May not be tomorrow, may not be next week. It may not be during this lifetime, but there will be a day when all is revealed. Look at verse two. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, the basis for this statement, this is almost proverbial, is the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. Nothing escapes his view. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's no way to escape it. Uh, Professor Daryl Box says this, a double life is a destructive, empty lifestyle that ignores what God always sees. So this is a warning. This statement here is a warning to those who would hide wrongdoing, but also, don't miss this, it can be an encouragement to those who are tempted to maintain silence in a public that is opposed to the message or the way of life. And hypocrisy can come in both forms. All will be revealed, good and evil alike. So if we're going to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, this hypocrisy, what do we need to do? First of all, we need to fail not to conceal what ought to be confessed. 
Do not conceal what ought to be confessed. And two things fall under that, that category. First of all, we need to make it a habit to confess our struggles with sin. Just make that a habit. And then secondly, we need to make it a habit to confess our faith in Jesus Christ. We need to speak easily about that. And as I think about a church culture, I think we're responsible for making this a place where both of those things can be done with great ease. The more performance-oriented we are, if we were to become legalistic, law-based, makes those two things really hard because who wants to talk about their failures and who wants to talk about their faith in Christ and not be sure, like, am I doing it right? Going to be judged or assessed for how I do this? And It's a cultural thing. Now I want you to think with me, what might keep us from confession? What keeps you from confession of any kind? I would say a dangerous fuel for hypocrisy is misplaced fear. And that's the next thing that Jesus addresses. Misplaced fear will rob you of your freedom. And confession leads to freedom. So let's see what Jesus says in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. If you do fear those people that he's describing there, you give them a power over your life they were never intended to have. Like we're all people. <laughs> it's a level playing field. We may have different um, possessions and power and popularity and all that kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, it is a level playing field for all of us in terms of how we stand before God. People-pleasing in all of its forms, opens us up to temptation. Two kinds of sin. One is the sin of commission, that is, we do what we shouldn't do. And then sins of omission, we fail to do what we ought to do. When we are orienting our life around pleasing people, the fear of man, then we're open to temptations on both of those fronts. Jesus continues, verse 5, but I will warn you, or other translations show you, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The worst that man could ever do is end your life. And I don't mean to, to make light of that. But let's just, let's just kind of follow Jesus in his teaching here. He's saying the worst anyone can ever do to you on this earth is take your life. And your life, my life, is a little blip in all of eternity. But when that life is over, guess what? There is a God who created everything and he makes eternal determinations. So... It's a comparison contrast here. Do you fear the little guy who can take away your blip? Or do you fear the one who will decide the rest of your eternity based upon your response to him? Now, verse, verses four and five 
are less a threat of judgment and they're just intended to paint that contrast. Here's what Jesus knows. If you get the fear of the Lord, you will be fearless in the face of men, regardless of their opposition. Because they don't have anything that they can really take from you other than your life. And again, I'm not making light of it, just saying they can't take what is most important about you, and that is your eternity. Jesus is cultivating a proper fear of the Lord. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 1. He says, it's my eager expectation. Uh, Just by the way, he's writing this from prison (laughs) where he's probably threatened regularly. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How do you threaten that guy? If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The fear of the Lord fueled Paul's faithfulness. And it made him courageous despite the threat of death. I came across another person uh, just this week, an amazing young lady who was alive during World War II. Her name is Sophie Skoll. And uh, she was around the Nazi movement and uh, felt like a serious conviction, a, a conscious about that to oppose it in whatever way she could. She joined a thing called the White Rose Movement, which was uh, a passive resistance to the Nazi regime. She was handing out leaflets one day and she was arrested. She was interrogated with her friends. They judged her guilty and she was sentenced to death. Here's what she said just before she died. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? She understands who to fear. Getting back to Paul, his fear was not of God's wrath. Obviously, he said to be with Christ was what he desired. His fear of the Lord was an awe of God's infinite power and his steadfast love. And that's what Jesus mentions next in verse 6. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? They were the most worthless animal sold in the market. And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows things about you you don't even know about yourself. Fear not. You are of more value than many 
sparrows. The fear of the Lord isn't meant to cause us to cower in a corner. It's, it's meant to draw us into intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Here's a definition for the fear of the Lord. It is a proper, humble acknowledgement of God's holiness and power, which generates conformity or obedience to his will. It does do that, but never causes us to doubt his love for his children. That's a full picture of the fear of the Lord. So if we are going to deal with this threat of hypocrisy, the other thing we're going to need to do is to exchange our fear of man for the fear of the Lord. Very consciously, very purposefully, very intentionally. And if we'll do that, it will preserve our freedom to do what we were created to do. And that's the last point in your outline. You were made to publicly make much of God. You were made to publicly make much of God. Look at what uh, Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone, verse 10, who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now I'll tell you up front, these are very difficult statements to interpret. And uh, there are a variety of perspectives around this passage. I know uh, many have become very troubled by some of the things that are here. So let me just lay it out with you as best I can. I think in light of the larger context of this passage, remember Jesus is trying to prepare his men to proclaim the gospel, to be the founders of the church in the face of great opposition. So it seems to me that verses 8 through 10 are best understood as general truths which apply to all of humanity. So in other words, he's not planting seeds of doubt in his disciples like, oh my gosh, did I, did I deny? Did I, did I not deny? Did, did I blaspheme the Son of Man, the Holy Spirit? I mean, you see, I don't think that was Jesus' intent. I think what he was trying to say to his men is, listen, I'm calling you to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And every person that hears you, this is what's at stake. If they deny Christ, they will have a Christless eternity. In light of that, stand, speak. Do what God created you to do. Don't be silent. I think it's meant to be a source of motivation, not a source of gear of fear or guilt. It is possible that this denial reference is to 
the judgment seat of Christ that God, that Jesus might acknowledge them or not based upon their faithfulness to speak and that that would be related to rewards, not their eternal salvation. I, I still feel most comfortable with the idea that what, what Jesus is trying to do here is to say, this is your calling, these are the stakes, this is what you need to do. And then verse 11 makes a lot of sense. If you're committed to doing that, when you're brought before those religious leaders who are hostile and hate you and hate the message, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit who indwells you, he will tell you what to say. It doesn't have to be some big theological treatise. Basically, you're just going to be able to talk about what you know to be true, your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one quick word, let me, two quick words here. On the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I know that that is a troubling concept for a lot of people. And, and some wonder, Christians wonder, did I at some point blaspheme the Holy Spirit and I'm just out of luck and I'm guilty? Here's what I'd say to you. If you're worried about that, that is the evidence that you have not committed that sin. The, the Holy Spirit is convicting your life, lives in you, guiding you into all truth. If you had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't give a rip. You wouldn't give it another thought. You'd just do your own thing. So that concern, that conviction, that's actually a great sign of life. So I don't think you need to be troubled by that. Let me read to you... Um, Daryl Bach's explanation of this sin. He said, blasphemy of the spirit is not so much an act of rejection as it is a persistent and decisive rejection of the spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. When a person obstinately rejects and fixedly refuses that message or evidence, that person is not forgiven. I would say we would know that someone committed this sin by how their life ends. Um, Judas would be the example of this. Judas was also plagued with hypocrisy, wasn't he? Now, now Peter, he denied Christ three times. Bach calls that a denial of nerve. All of us will lose heart at various points along the way. But his heart was contrite. He was repentant of that. And uh, I think Jesus actually used it in his life uh, to make him a great proclaimer later on. So, Jesus is emphasizing the eternal significance of our proclamation. And even as we talk about going out to our city, this is great motivation for us. As we think about the fear of the Lord, and the opportunity that we have to introduce people to Christ. When the heat gets turned up, and it may, at some point in your life, last point in your outline, trust the Holy Spirit to equip and enable you as a witness. And he will do it. He's promised that. That isn't just that it might happen. He's saying, if you will stand, if you will speak, you will have the Holy Spirit's words 
making their way out of your mouth. Last thing I'll say about that, and then we'll go to a so what. Remember that these disciples had been walking with Jesus for quite some time. And so when he says the Holy Spirit will speak through you, the Holy Spirit isn't speaking out of a vacuum. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things that they heard Jesus say and saw Jesus do. Now, what does that mean for us? If you don't ever think about God, if you don't ever read your Bible, if you don't ever pray, what is it that that the Holy Spirit is going to draw upon to share through you? All the more reason for us to pursue Christ with everything that we have, get into his word, spend time in prayer, live in community. And that will put into you the substance, the content that the Holy Spirit will draw upon at just the right moment. So let's just keep filling ourselves with the truth of God's word, trusting that the Holy Spirit will use it at just the right time, in just the right way. Take a moment, please, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind whatever it is in here. Maybe you are struggling with the leaven of hypocrisy. Maybe that's a reality for you right now. Maybe you are feeling some fear, uh, fear of man. Maybe you need to heighten your fear of the Lord. I, I don't know what it is, but ask the Lord to bring this to mind, to show you where you need to take a step so that when the time comes for you to stand, you will. Take a moment, consider that.